Hey, you want to do the intro this time? No, that's your job. You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight, we're talking about John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Stick around afterwards, and we're going to talk about the trailers for Star Wars The Force Awakens and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. They're coming to get you, Barbara. We're on a mission from God. I'll buy that for a dollar! Welcome to the party, pal! Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Man's got to know his limitations. And they mostly come at night. Mostly. Let's put a smile on that face. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like... Victory. This sort of thing has cropped up before. And it has always been due to human error. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. This is Jeremy. Yo. And tonight we are discussing John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Came out in 1981. How many times have you seen this movie? Uh, twice now. Twice. When was the first time? I was probably about six years old. This is the first time I, re- I remember things from the movie. <laughs> This is an older film, kind of you've seen almost for the first time again. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not the, uh, the the classic love you have. You you watch the movie once a year, and and you're really excited. You were really excited about, you know, the I'd I'd never really remembered it. So, oh. watching it, I was like, okay, well, I'll watch it. So it's you know, fresh movie for me. Where for you, it's a baby you stroke. This is a staple, man. This is this is one of the films that. One of the first first John Carpenter movies I got exposed to, uh, this Halloween and the Thing. I should probably set the scene for anybody that's listening. Um, <laughs> uh, as as my friend here, Elkins, is talking, um, there is a picture of him and John Carpenter less than two feet from his face. Yeah, I did get to meet John Carpenter. I actually got to have a little little conversation with him. My wife kind of came in and stole it, and they were talking about eyeballs, because my wife's an optometrist, and I was like, yeah, okay, cool. My wife's talking to John Carpenter about his eye stuff. Awesome. Great. Thank you for that one, honey. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Took my moment of glory from me. No, but we went to a convention, got to meet him. It was, he was a really awesome guy, but he's one of my favorite filmmakers. He's just, you know, one of those people that you latch on to. That- he kind of taught me, like, when I was younger to like look for directors, like he kind of, he was one of those first directors right. that like had that style because he always had his name above the movie, John Carpenter's Halloween, John Carpenter's fall, whatever, whatever the movie right. is. Oh, you know what? I should watch what this guy's doing. Cause I like his style. I like what he's doing here. And that just kind of got me looking in, you know, got me a little director obsessed. Like every, you know, want to be filmmaker is at that time when you're young and impressionable. Right. Opens the door up. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, his body of work is quite impressive. I remember when uh, I first watched Halloween. Halloween was the first John Carpenter movie I saw, and I I did the whole like munch up as many of the films as I could find in the local video store. Somehow missed this one, and you know, and honestly, this the whole like the whole John Carpenter phase was in high school. So yeah, my my high school years were kind of kind of out like when he was out toward the tail of his. His career, like... Yeah, I was, like, watching his earlier stuff then. Another, like, his recent movie, The Ward, is probably the one I've seen the most here recently. I've watched it probably four times. Well, he hasn't really done any, uh, much else. So he did uh, Cigarette Burns for that Master of Horror series. Yeah, I have, I did not see that. And he did Pro-Life. I think the actual last theatrical release he did was uh, was uh, Ghost of Mars. 
the last one I can remember. So, all right, well, we're off point a little bit. Yeah, um, we, well, no, we're still talking about John Carpenter here. Okay, so, so as long as like that's the main, we're cool. Right? I mean, yeah, as long as we're talking about John Carpenter, I think we're we're as okay. As long as here. Master Carpenter's in the. That's right, because it is John Carpenter's Escape from New York, which I have a poster for in my kitchen. I remember watching the making of Halloween, and he had in his contract that it would say John Carpenter's Halloween, and. A little inside knowledge here. Brian is the editor of my my new movie, Girl in Woods, and he is insisting that the trailer have from director Jeremy Benson, and I'm fighting this. Gotta put your name out there, brother. Which goes back to Brian meeting John Carpenter, and he asked John Carpenter if he had any advice for upcoming filmmakers, and his advice was? His advice was, put your name out there and... Have an ego. Have an ego, because everybody's going to destroy you. Everybody's going to tell you no, but you got to believe in your vision. So that's from the man himself. So for any paraphrasing wannabe filmmakers out there that might be listening to this, John Carpenter's advice to you is have an ego, get your name out there, and don't give up on your vision. That's right. Which man. which happens to be the same advice Ty West gave, by the way. Oh yeah, well, yeah, we got to meet Ty West too. Not at the same thing. This was this was was it last year? Year before last. Year before last. It was a sacrament when he was yeah. uh, debuting that. Just hanging out in Memphis. Yeah, yeah, we got yeah we got to say hello to Ty West and see his movie with some of the actors present. Joe Swanberg was there. The, the father. Oh yeah, yeah, he that was dude there. Showed up. Yeah. Yeah. He was. He was. He was good in that. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Now we should do a podcast on the sacrament. All right. Well, no, I think we're we'll get we're gonna get to all the Ty West movies. Ty deserves some 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 cast time. Some pod in time. How the fuck do you call it? What is it? Is it? I don't. I don't know. I don't know what you call this. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm coining the phrase cast time. So, do you remember the first time you saw Escape from New York? Like, do you remember the first time your uh, first experience? Man. First Escape time from New York. Yeah, I was. Pr- I was probably like eight years old and saw it on TBS when it came out. I mean, yeah, the first time I saw it, I was young. I, mean, I may have been. I may have been older. I may have been 10, because I remembered some of the scenes. And I honestly, I can't imagine a six-year-old sitting down Saturday afternoon watching Escape from New York. Oh, but, I, mean, I would watch it if I was six. Well, yeah, I just don't think it was on TV at the time. So we used to have here, we used to have Channel 24 did the 24-carat movies on Saturday afternoon. And it would always be like Escape from New York, The Frogs, and something else. The Frogs. Yeah. Oh, man. Um <laughs> And I, you know, I remember sitting down and watching. I think one. It seems like I may be wrong, but it seems like one weekend it was like Mad Max, Road Warriors, and then Escape from New York. I'd sit down and watch that. Uh, it seems like me and my dad sat down and watched it in kind of a block. Well, yeah, that was that was kind of the year, like eighty one. Th- the Road Warrior came out, I think, in eighty one or eighty. And that this movie and the Road Warrior they share the, the very similar kind of like style kind of vibe. Yeah, where they have that like I don't know what do you call it that punk. Yeah, the punk apocalypse. Look. Now, now I'm not sure why. Like just personally, the the punk apocalypse never really set in for me, so I never. Oh, uh, dude. As a you know adolescent, or uh, I just never searched it out to watch it again. So, but for you, like when you first saw it, you 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 fell in love, and so explain like how. What's well, it's so weird, it's so different, like even. Even like when the the first time you like really get into New York in this movie, you have the uh, the Romero character that comes up and delivers the president's finger. You touch me, he dies. If 
you're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. If you come back in, he dies. seconds. I'm ready to talk. 19. 18. What do you want? 17. 16. Let's go. Let's go. It is this, it's really bizarre really weird. hiss. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, that just adds like, so it's just like, why would you do that? Because you are insane as fuck. When did this become a yearly watch? You told me you watched this once a year. Oh yeah, this is this was a I latched onto this right away. When was the first time you saw it uncut, not on television? Oh, that was way later. Now I, I didn't. That was when probably when I bought the DVD. Okay, well, speaking of now, Scream Factory has put out a new <laughs> new version. How yep. does that hold up, like image wise? Do you, do you is it the best you've ever seen it look? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Good presentation? Yeah, no, Stream Factory did a great job. That's actually why we're doing this movie this week. It's because Escape from New York actually, I think, comes out um, on Tuesday for everyone. If you order, order it directly from the website, you get it earlier, and you get a little poster. Scream Factory does that for all their collector's editions, so if anything's coming out, I highly recommend going to their website. But, no, the image quality was almost too good. The back of the box said it was a 2K scan. I noticed a lot of out-of-focus shots in this film. Yeah. There were a lot of out-of-focus shots. And half of that was because the uh, the lens that they used, because they this was not set on a, on, a, on a lot or anything. They actually shot this in St. Louis, a part of St. Louis that caught fire, actually. It was pretty much deserted. Abandoned buildings that had burnt down. Right. I mean, if a city catches on fire, why not use it to shoot your apocalypse movie? That's right. And dump a giant airplane in the middle of and you know set a bunch of fires on i tell you honestly like something that kind of stuck out to me is like seeing the world trade centers there constantly yeah that was it i mean i'm not saying that like they should remove them because that would be blasphemy well i mean you can't he lands on top of the world right. trade centers um there's a huge set piece up there with an airplane it does kind of take me out of the movie a little bit now, especially that scene where he's he's got the glider and it's just there's that shot where it's going, it's landed on the World Trade Center. It's just like oh, man, oh, and is, even at the beginning when they oh um, that imagery now is when they they hijack Air Force One and they're trying to plot their course and it's plotted right into the World Trade Center. It looks like I don't think or it's one of the buildings. Yeah, it's it's one of the buildings. And it's just but. like wow, this is sort of. Um, foreshadowing. I went to see Ghostbusters in the theater last year when it, the 30th anniversary, and there's there's the shot. And I guess you just you know it, 2000. It's 2001. It's a long time ago now, but you know you live through that, and then you see the you see it, and you're like, oh wow, yeah, yeah. I remember there was that big deal with like Martin Scorsese's um, Gangs of New York when Gangs of New York came out, and they at the very end they have the grave site. And it shows New York as it changes in the background. Right. And they do that one shot where it had the Trade Center in the background. I remember there was a little bit of controversy when that came out. But watching and the Spider-Man now, teaser? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that got... Yeah. That poster is actually worth quite a pretty penny now. I snuck into a movie just to see the Spider-Man teaser. And then got caught and kicked out. But 
saw what I came to see. <laughs> you saw you saw the teaser. Well, I was le- actually I was leading into the movie is set in 1997. Yeah, and, 1997 is now in the movie. Right. Set set up set up the movie. <laughs> oh yeah, for somebody should... that hasn't seen it. So uh, the the film just takes place. It informs us that you know crime has gotten out of control, and they have walled off Manhattan. The whole island of Manhattan is it's mined with the bridges are and um, it's just it's walled off. It's patrolled day and night. There's even a scene where they're like tra- they're rafting out. Some inmates are rafting out and this helicopter comes, blows them out of the water. It's it's kind of funny because he's like, you have four seconds to turn around. And they, <laughs> they, they start turning around and they're just like, oh, screw it. And then they get blown up. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't he give them a lot of time. But, you know, whatever. They're inmates on a raft, you know. And you kind of get the idea that this is a. Like a real, like maybe a fascist or like a hardcore police state that America has kind of turned into. So anyway, the Air Force One gets hijacked by. I guess we're in we're in a. It's alluded to that we're in some war with somebody. We're or there is a possibility of a war. Yeah, it's yeah. it's never really made clear, but that's okay because it's not a real big focus of the movie. But this this revolution woman, this militant woman. Hijacks Air Force One and crash lands it into New York, which is this maximum security prison now in the year 1997. And before the, the futuristic year of 1997. Oh yeah, that's true. It is futuristic. Uh, <laughs> and before the plane crashes to the ground and kills everybody, the president's pot. The president gets into a pod. Oh, speaking of, the, I I didn't know this. I was listening to the commentary. This is real. Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford. That's his son. That is getting Donald Pleasant, who plays the president, into the pod. Oh, really? Yeah, that's his son. This little... I wonder if Air Force One really has a pod. It doesn't, according it's to John not. Carpenter on the uh, on the on the commentary. I've always wondered if uh, Air Force One has a, like an escape vehicle for the president. I don't know. They they did that in that uh, what was that other movie? Uh, Air Force One with um, Harrison, Harrison Ford. Ford. They didn't they have like some escape pod in Indiana that Jones on a plane. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, I'll I'll take Indiana Jones anywhere, dude. I remember watching that anywhere. movie, thinking, man, the president's a badass. <laughs> he is if he's Harrison Ford, man. Harrison, so, run, run, Harrison, run. So he gets ejected out of that pod, and of course they they got to go get the president now in this security system, and that's that's when we were introduced to that Romero character that I was talking about. That was really right. interesting. And then they have to they have to leave because you know they they say they're gonna kill him and showing a showing him a, a finger with a ring on it. They leave, which apparently is not the president's finger. No, because the president has all his fingers later in the movie. So anyway, from there you're introduced to Kurt Snake. Russell. Snake. What's his last name? Snake Pliskin. 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 Call me Snake. I kept wanting to call Pennygraph there for a second. What? No. I, call me Snake. As a first time watching this, I immediately knew I was like, "Okay, whoever wrote this, John Carpenter obviously had Clint Eastwood in mind for this part because Kurt Russell is playing Clint Eastwood as yeah. Snake. Yeah, he's, he's yeah, he's, um, he's, he's even doing the Clint get off my lawn voice. Well, well, they did put him up against Lee Van Cleef, who is the bad and the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean." You know, you, you got the spaghetti western vibe going. Go with it, man. And of course, you know Carpenter's a big fan of those films. He's he's Who on isn't. The, he's on a he's on the commentary for the the DVD of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. 
And he's actually talking about how, you know, how that film was such an influence on him. I think you definitely feel that here. This film yeah. definitely has a Western vibe to it with all this futuristic stuff. It, it's a, it's I mean, a genre it's a, mix. Yeah, it's a, it's a Western story told in a sort of futuristic, post-apocalyptic environment. And, of course, now, Kurt Russell was a big gamble at the time. Now, most people knew him from, like, the Dis- those Disney movies he made. So, Kurt Russell was never a badass, ever, on screen before this role. And I think John Carpenter worked with him on uh, a movie called Elvis um, before this. It was, ma- it was a made-for-TV film. <laughs> and uh, I was re- actually reading an interview with John Carpenter. He said the only reason they hired him for that gig was because he, he did the music on Halloween. And they're like, well, he must know music. Hire him. <laughs> yeah, I've read that. <laughs> I always thought that was pretty good. But uh, so John Carpenter fart, fart, fought for uh, Kurt he Russell. He farted for Kurt Russell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he farted for Kurt Russell. No, he fought uh, to get Kurt Russell in this role. And uh, man, I think it I think it plays off. I mean, hey, we got Kurt Russell a couple like five or six years after this in uh, Tango and Cash, and man, he he went on to make a couple other action films. Yeah, I mean, um, he fits the role. It's it's just funny seeing him play Clint Eastwood <laughs> being. Uh, I don't know. I just I've lived with that performance for so long, and when I saw it, I man, I saw this like eight or nine, and I, man, I was just like, Kurt Russell's a fucking badass, dude. I, that guy's fucking awesome. I want to be him. I wanted to see him without his eye patch. I wanted to know what was up. <laughs> You'll never know, man. You'll never know. And this is the first time we're introduced. You know, the Snake Plissken. There was actually a scene that they shot at a. It's a bank heist, and he gets caught. And that was actually supposed to be the first scene. They cut it because John Carpenter and I guess the producers didn't feel that it was, you know, impactful enough. That that'd be the first time you see him. I think it was the right call. I mean, this. What it does sort bus. of it does sort of leave. If you're not completely paying attention to at the beginning of the movie, is he a prisoner or is he being brought in to help? Well, he's got handcuffs on. Right. Well, I meant being brought in against his will to help. Uh. Well. Well, of course, yes, he is being in, brought in against his will. And, of course, Lee Van Cleef, they have a, they have a great dialogue back and forth going on. He gives him the, the deal of you get a pardon if you save the president. If you go in and get the president. And then they insert the explosives in his neck. And he's, he's a little pissed about that. What did you do to me, asshole? My idea, Pliskin. Something we've been fooling around with. Two microscopic capsules lodged in your arteries. They're already starting to dissolve in 22 hours, the cores will completely dissolve. Inside the cores are a heat-sensing charge. Not a large explosive, about the size of a pinhead. Just big enough to open up both your arteries. I'd say you'd be dead in 10 or 15 seconds. Come out now. They're protected by the cores. 15 minutes before the last hour's up, we can neutralize the charge with X-rays. We'll burn out the charges if you have the president. What if I'm a little late? No more Hartford Summit, and no more Snake Plissken. When I get back, I'm gonna kill you. And that the, the payoff for that is maybe later. <laughs> well, <I'm> yeah. Tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I love about it. He's just like, ah, fuck, yeah, yeah. But he is tired, man. That was a, that was a rough. It's it's a rough. When he goes through this movie, it's rough. And he hang glides in, and that's when we get the him landing on the World Trade Center. 
And then he goes off, start looking for the president. He ends up in like some Broadway stage play where we have those inmates up on stage singing and dancing. Shoot a cop with a gun. The big apple is plenty of fun. Stab a priest with a fork. And you'll spend your vacation in New York. Yeah, I, I, li- I like the idea that there's this entire city of prisoners and with what's left of the city, they have created as much of a society as they can, which apparently is all being led by the Duke, Sir Isaac Hayes. That's right. Legendary Isaac Hayes. Duke of New York. Hey, number one. You have different like factions. You've got the cannibals that apparently live underground. Oh yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, Kind of wondering how much from this did Stephen King borrow for the Wastelands? Uh, some care if you haven't read the book, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, toward the end of the book, they they go into a city called Lud, and it's a post-apocalyptic city, and it's uh, inhabited by two gangs, the Greys and the Pubes. And the Pubes live above ground, and the Greys are below ground, and. They're described to be sort of post-apocalyptic punk-looking characters. We do we do get these uh, these these factions in in the in the prison. Kind of reminds me a little bit. Have you ever seen uh, the Warriors, the Walter Hill's movie? And it's got like all the different gangs. And they yeah, all have different. They all yeah. have different themes. And it kind of like these don't really have themes, but like all the gangs, like you can see, like just kind of the way they dress. And their cars they drive. Because Isaac Hayes, the Duke of New York, rides around in New York <laughs> with chandeliers on the hood of the car. Right. So ridiculous and over the top. I love it, though, man. It is amazing. It's just like, yep, I could totally see some guy that's the man in the prison driving around just like that. Now, I will say, like, the movie's very enjoyable. Um, easy 7 out of 10. In someone else's hands. It's not as good. No, I mean... Carpenter is a master at where to put that camera and to tell a story. And, I mean, yeah, there's some plot holes. Yeah, there's some kind of weak story points. There's some stuff that just, you're like... What the fuck you talking about? I'm talking about this movie and how, even while watching it, you point out, you know, you you should be asking about where all those cars are, but because of what just how he shot it, it doesn't even come up. Yeah, he does. He it's a it's a credit to John Carpenter and knowing you know where to put the camera and how to edit the story and how to stretch that dollar. Right. I mean, I mean, I've talked. You know, I, you know, I'll go give a speech or talk to people, local filmmakers that want to try to, you know, I want to get my movies out there. And well, what should I focus on? And I'll always tell them like, really pay attention to like using the camera to tell a story and. You've seen so often they just you, people set the camera up and not even think about what the shot means. Um, Carpenter's shots mean something. Uh, you're getting you're getting information from the shot. You're he's stretching one shot to give you a lot of information through it. As somebody coming to the movie as an adult for the first time in this age of cinema, filmmakers can learn a lot from this movie, storytelling wise and soundtrack wise. It, the soundtrack oh. is extremely simple. Yeah. Um, it's just a keyboard, but 
it builds tension when tension is needed. You you know, you hear those like, you know, those quarter notes that sort of mimicking a heartbeat that Dude, the score in this is beautiful. I mean, it makes you it makes you sit on the edge of your seat watching the shot composition, what he's capturing in frame. He always knows how to block actors and where to put things. Like he I feel like his frames are like he's always They're rich. Yeah, he's putting as much as he can in front of that camera. And you know, and even on some of the stuff that like they probably didn't have the money to fully flesh out, and so it's coming down to how you shoot it. Talking about the bridge at the end, and you know, stuff's blowing up. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very. Um, if he, you know, if you just shot that any other way, it it would have potential to become like really cheesy, and kind of bad. But he did it in a way that's entertaining, and it keeps you right into the story. And the whole time, you have the brilliant device of the huge wristwatch that's the size of a an iPad. It's not an Apple Watch. <laughs> it's not an Apple Watch. <laughs> Uh, it's the, like five Apple Watches. The uh, production designer on this did not did not uh, in, envision the future having smaller things. Well, I think they did the best they could with with what they had at the at the time. You know, it's, well, I mean, you're, you know, you're it's coming from 1981, right? I mean, there was like I mean, you have to remember that we're talking. There's no CGI in this movie, right? The uh, like all the computer screens uh, stuff that was either hand drawn. Or uh, some of the overhead stuff, they actually took the models that they made, and they put green tape on them. Oh, really? Yeah, and they somehow got them to glow or something like that, and that's how they shot that. You know, so they, and they went to Roger Corman's uh, uh, effects house at the time that he had, and they, you know, they did all the uh, effects work. There's some really good stuff on the uh, Screen Factory DVD. What was the budget on this? Man, I've never, I haven't been able to get, uh, like, ever a clear answer, like... Uh, Pretty, anywhere from five to seven million. I was gonna guess about six million at the time. Yeah, I think IMDb listed <laughs> IMDb listed at six is estimated. But uh, I heard uh, I think it was on one of the special features. Somebody said five, and uh, now I heard somewhere else it was seven. So I'm not 100 percent sure what the budget is. Oh, that but, sounds about right. Uh, I think Star Wars, which was preceding this by what three years, four years. Yeah, uh, I think it was an eight million dollar venture. Star Wars seventy seven. They they did stretch that. I mean they, they the the plane that the president cl- crashes in. They actually they got a plane that had been broken up in halves and they hauled it in the middle of this destroyed city and set it up. And it is a huge awesome shot. And of course John Carpenter always shoots in those beautiful Panavision lenses. You know they give you that awesome flare and that two three five. He always shoots in two three five. You got to shoot two three five. Got to make it. Got to make it for the cinema, baby. I had a debate recently with uh, our friend Bob about uh, if two three five is outdated or not. He 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 was saying that he he thinks people should not shoot in two three five anymore. That since TVs are are sixteen by nine, that and some movies are sixteen by nine, that you should just shoot all movies sixteen by nine and get rid of the black bars altogether. I disagree. I personally love two three five. Yeah, I'm um, a big fan of it, man. I think the wider like, frame is I awesome. like distinguishing between when I'm watching a movie and a TV show. I didn't yeah. I didn't bother to correct him that the movies are actually 185 instead of 16 by 9. So Yeah, yeah, even those, if they're shot the, digitally, they usually put a mat on them. I I just, I just, just, you know, figure those those few pixels will just go unargued for. 
Oh, I've noticed in some Blu-rays here recently, they stopped they stopped putting the 185 mat on them. They just leave them open. Yeah. Did we talk about the lenses and the focus? Yeah, we talked about the focus distance stuff. Well, you you started to explain, but I don't. We didn't really get into it. Uh, they shot the movie in St. Louis after what, like Brian said, there was a part of St. Louis that burned down, and so they went in and turned it into a I think they said movie East set. Um, because it was such an open area, and they didn't have the light power to light the area, they had to use special lenses that have a very shallow depth of field. If you don't know what that means, it's when you're looking at an image and there's one part that's in focus and then everything behind it's out of focus. Uh, that's shallow depth of field. You only have a couple of inches in that range of focus. Yep. Uh, this is pretty shallow uh, because of the limited light they had. Anybody that's listening now, I want you to think about this. Back then, there wasn't a digital camera running a cable to a monitor that you could look at and go, yeah, that looks like it's in focus. The way you tell if it's in focus is you run a tape measure. Yeah, I guess the ACs were not using monitor assist then. <laughs> so yeah, you have to run the tape measure. Yeah, well, that was the only way to know for sure. Even the monitor assist doesn't give you that accurate of a... You're going to run a tape measure. Yeah, you'd have to run a tape measure back in those days. So any of those moving shots, yeah, you're going to buzz them. Yeah, and so yeah, so when the, when the actor moves, you have to... Measure where the actor's going to go. And if they don't go exactly where you measured, they're going to be out of focus. And it, it's, a, it's a certain skill, too, because like when somebody's walking from A to B, if they're walking toward the camera, there's all that variation in between of the different speeds they're going to walk, and it's just right. a constant moving object that person's got to be on. So the, the focus puller on the film is pulling focus for, you know, like they're at A, B, C, and D marks for the actor. Well, those are at 6, 8, and 10 feet, so he's trying to hit these feet marks. And if the actor varies that at all, then they're going to be out of focus. And obviously that happened. Right. So to, say that, there's, there's some, that, to say that there's some focus problems, I wouldn't call them problems. I would call that miraculous that the movie's in focus at all. <laughs> yeah, that is true. They did get a, they, they got a lot of the, sh the shots in focus. Now, some of the stuff you know, in, in the set's not a problem. It's mostly this, the exterior stuff they did in St. Louis. I never had a problem like watching it on TV. Never noticed any of this stuff. Even watching it on the DVD, maybe noticed like one or two shots. But yeah, this time, yeah, Blu-ray's less forgiving. I love the color palette. I thought it had. I thought it had a really good color palette. That's that Dean Cundy kind of like he he did that that blue night look. Well, like in Halloween. Well, it's a blue night look, but there's also a lot of warm yellows that come in. It's very contrasty. Yeah, it's kind of like the action movie thing right now, like teal and orange everywhere. It's like that's how we do our action movie posters. Yeah, but it's stuff. not as it's not as high contrast. No, he he doesn't he he doesn't use teal and orange. He's he's very like this is my night. My night's a blue kind of hint to it, and then or hue to it. Sorry, and then you know he's there's constant fires in this movie because right. so that, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're yeah. contrasting that blue with a stark orange, or then you go into an interior. And the interior is all like very bright, warm oranges. Even the wrestling scene. Oh, that is a really cool scene, too. Okay, so yeah, during the course of the movie, Snake is captured by the Duke. And uh, for their entertainment, they put Snake in a re homemade wrestling ring to do battle with uh, some giant bear-looking guy. And they give them weapons to use, and Snake kills him. 
Spoiler. <laughs> I it's I think uh, we didn't put a spoiler warning on this, but I think it's okay. The movie came out in 1981. Like we're talking about the movies because we enjoy them. We're not trying to like. <laughs> It's 1981. Come on. If, if you like the movie, forever. listen to the podcast. If you want to know if you should watch it or not, just go watch it. Yeah, always go watch the film first. Like, always. Come on. I mean, we do this thing because we like talking about movies. But yeah. So, not because we think we can review them. <laughs> no, we're definitely. Yeah, that, that's a problem right now because, like, there's no way I could ever do a critical, like, analysis of this. I just love this movie too much, man. I just. It's. It, it may have flaws. I would not say I'm going to admit to any. <laughs> I mean, it may, but I just, it's 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 a dated film. When you when you watch it now, it you can tell it was not made recently. Yeah, it has been a little dated. Um, I think that's a part of the budget. But at the same time, you know, like I was just saying, like if you haven't seen it and you're and you're interested in filmmaking or you just like a good, you know action story it's fun to watch carpenter does a good job of telling the story with the limited you know limited stuff that he had yeah he's never let me down man i even like the ones that people people always like to throw ghost of mars up as being terrible i, I even like that there, i wouldn't say it's terrible there's there I, there's still so much in that movie that i love oh there was one thing i wanted to uh, there's one scene that i don't it's it almost push it almost pushes the Snake Plissken character a little almost to the too dark side, where it's it he's he's going down and it's when he's got that uh, that big tracking device and he's looking for he's looking for the president's locator and he starts going down like further and further into the basement of this building, right? And he pass he passes three guys that are definitely getting ready to rape a chick, and he's just like. Yeah, it's not my problem. And just keeps going, man. Just keeps going. Like, this guy is not a hero. I think also that's a little bit of a character arc. Because later in the movie, he does go back to try to get Maggie. Is that her name? Oh, yeah. Well, he didn't, he didn't get her back. He just tries to get her to come on, really. But he took the time to do it. <laughs> well, I mean... I think that's him, like, growing that much. <laughs> yeah, well... I- it's weird that he's like he's such a bad character, but everyone else around him is so much worse. Like he's really the only one in the movie that has any honor. The anti-hero setup that you have to deal with. Yeah, but he does do things. It's like, yeah, man, that's that's kind of fucked up. Like when those cannibals come out of the ceiling, uh, not the ceiling, out of the floor when they're in chock full of nuts. <laughs> they're stationed up in there, and that's Kurt Russell's uh, wife at the time. Uh, uh, she's got a crazy oh, name. Yeah, Season the- Hubley. The one that was hitting on him? Yeah, asking him for the cigarette and everything. And she gets she gets sucked under the floor. And even then, like, Kurt Russell, like, he reaches out to try to grab her hand, but then he's just like, you know, this is kind of... When when she gets sucked down, he does not go after her. No, he's not going to take the time to go after her. He's, no, he's, the, just he's like, on a mission, and that's the mission. Yeah, I'm out of here. I'm out of 5,000. Gone. Gone. You know, it's an interesting character. I don't, I don't know if... Modern cinema would actually have like a character you're supposed to like walk away from a rape scene in a action film like that. I'm not sure if you'd even get to put in the almost rape scene. Yeah, I mean, well, unless you're going for an R, but most of the time they want a PG-13 on those. Well, yeah. Well, this was kind of this wasn't a hard R, but I mean, at the no. time it, it had some violence in it. And then just you know, Kurt Russell just looks on and goes down to find the drunk dude that has the president's locator 
watch on. Who is George Buck Flowers, a John Carpenter staple. This guy was in They Live and uh I mean he was he was in so many of Carpenter's films. Uh same with um what's his name? Uh Charles Cyphers was he he was the uh sheriff in Halloween, uh, Annie's father. And Dr. Samuel Loomis is back as the president. I didn't know this, but I was actually um doing some research and did you know Donald Pleasant w- was actually a POW in World War Two? No. I didn't know that either. And he he said like that's what he drew some of his inspiration from when he was being like, you know, chained up there. And he does this great like little cowardly voice. Give me the diagram. What did I teach you? You are Duke of New York, you're hey number one. I can't hear you. You are the Duke of New York, you're hey number one. Yeah, you know, like, watching the movie, and, I mean, this coming from a guy that, like, watches horror films all the time, this is not a horror film, so you're you're setting up from the get-go, this is not, you're not gonna see the most atrocious stuff happen. The movie has a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek feel throughout it. Yeah, it's got a little comedy element. Um, yeah. But when they're, you know, they're torturing the president, like, if it didn't have that, that could have gotten a little dark. Donald Pleasant's playing it like it could be a be grimdark. Yeah, like he's like he's he's delivering it like it's grimdark. Yeah, but no. what's going on around him is fun to watch. And shooting at him and <laughs> Isaac Hayes is is awesome in this movie. The bad guy is it's uh, yeah he's, he's constantly shooting uh, at the president and eventually he opens up his briefcase and the tape falls out. The mysterious tape. That's right. That's. I think they mentioned something about fusion at one point. Being on, like, like uh, you've snake seen ass. the movie thirty-seven times. It, snake ass, like, and I think in the film he's just like, "What's on it?" And he's like, "You know, Lee Van Cleef is like, you know anything about nuclear fission?" Girls is like, "Ah, fuck you, man. <laughs> Don't give a shit, bro. Come on, fuck you, send me in there. Let me get my pardon." Uh, apparently, he, the president, is supposed to make a big speech during a. No, he's supposed to attend a yeah, summit. summit. Yeah. And during the summit, I guess he was going to give information to these other countries to as sort of a peace offering to stop a war. And Kurt Russell doesn't give him the right tape. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the Romero guy gets the tape, and he ends up trading it off screen. You don't, you don't ever see this, but like he shows up with a character we haven't even talked about yet, Cabby. Cabby. He shows up with his his hat, and he's this taxi hat, and that's how Brain, another character we haven't even talked about, we're gonna have to back up here. Um, and that's how that's how they get the the tape into play because it was it gets lost for a little bit and shuffled around. In writing this, there are like people have very distinct characters. Snake is the badass gonna go in and get the president, and then you have like Brain, Cabby. These are not, like, characters that are going to blend together. He did things to really set them apart, even in their wardrobe, by having, like, uh, Brain wearing a white doctor's robe. Yeah, a white lab coat. coat. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why I said robe. They each serve their own different role. Like, Cabby is there to really provide us with a little bit of comic relief, and he's the one that connects us to everybody. You know, like, he's the one that, once Snake finds the, rich, the wristwatch, it's like, well, what do I do? 
And that's when, you know, like he's after he gets chased from the cannibals and all that, that's that's Cabby ends up saving him with a Molotov cocktail. Bad neighborhood snake. You don't want to be walking from the bar to 42nd Street at night. Ha, I've been driving a cab here for 30 years, and I'm telling you, you don't walk around here at night. <laughs> yes, sir. It'll kill you and strip you in 10 seconds flat. Usually I'm not done around here myself, but I wanted to catch that show. This stuff is like gold around here, you know. It's like gold. Ernest, Ernest Borgnine, who is playing uh, Cabby, he he does say this this line, which I think is really interesting. But he's got this line where he's, uh, I've been driving a cab here for 30 years. Well, the, the prison hasn't been there for 30 years. So has this guy been driving this cab? In the, New York. The entire time? That's what I assumed. He introduces us to Brain, which we find out that... Brain and Snake Pliskin have some kind of past. I'm glad you remember me. Yeah. Man should remember his past. Kansas City, four years ago, you ran out on me. You left me sitting there. You were late. The cowboy walks into the, the saloon and they're talking about... Uh, Blackie, and then he walks in. As soon as he sees Blackie, he's like, you son of a gun, you still owe me a horse from... And of course, Brain is played by the awesome character actor, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, who just a couple years ago uh, was uh, got his head all chomped on by an alien in Ridley Scott's Alien. So he's doing, he's doing his little sci-fi rounds at this time. The New York Library is where Brain is set up. And in there, he has with him um, his squeeze Maggie, who is played by Adrian Barbeau. If you watch horror movies, you should know who Adrian Barbeau is. Uh, the Fog, Creep Show. I mean, she was she was in a lot of the '80s stuff, and of course, I think a lot of men know her for her uh, very attractive figure. Uh, she was rocking back then, and she was actually married to John Carpenter at this point. Oh, really? Yeah, he directed her in this TV movie. This only John Carpenter film I haven't seen. Uh, someone's watching me. Um, uh, he directed her in that, and then they did The Fog. You know, I know Carpenter wrote this specifically for Adrian Barbeau at the time, but, man, I, I like her, like, kick-ass, like, you know, like, she is kind of, they even say it in the movie, she's brains, like, protector, and she doesn't fuck around. But they don't have guns in the prison, so, of course, when Snake Plissken comes and threatens him with a gun, she just immediately whoops out that knife real quick. Well, she's awful quick, too, to want to jump onto Snake's bandwagon. Uh, well, he's got a gun. Well, even after to. that, like, even after, like, you know, they go into the lair, the brain's lair, and he says, well, I'm building a blueprint to get out of the city. They're going to use the president to get us all out of here. She's the one that sort of pushes for, no, let's go with Snake and just us get out. Well, yeah, well, I think she, I think that's more of a survival thing because she realizes that, come on, I mean, like, all the, all the inmates in there getting out at one time, like... And apparently his map wasn't very good anyway. <laughs> and the president, the president's got a time limit on him, too, yeah. because of this, this uh, meeting. And he, you know, he, he tells them that. They don't really buy it 100%, but right. they end up helping him out in the movie. And they, Something you know, about, basically, if they don't get the president out in time of this meeting, then... It won't matter. It doesn't matter who the president is. Yeah, like, some bad shit's gonna go down. He gets captured, we have that wrestling converse, uh, confrontation. 
Snake Plissken goes up to the top of the World Trade Center. His glider that he rode in on, they were going to get out on, they dump it off. So now they have to go all the way back down. And this is one... That's a tall fucking building. Yeah, because the elevator only goes to like the 20th floor or something, I think they say in the movie. I really like the touch of like when they finally get down to the uh, World Trade Center, they are just like... Man, I can't fucking move. Yeah, they're, they're pretty tired. Yeah, they are just out. And like Donald Pleasance is like, oh, he's struggling, man. He is struggling. They're all struggling. And yeah, Kurt Russell at this point has also been shot with uh with a like a arrow in his leg. It turns into a chase between Isaac Hayes right. and and the guys. And uh, there's another thing, a uh, character thing that Isaac Hayes did that I always thought was pretty cool. It, whenever he's around Snake Plissken, he starts twitching his eye. Every time. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not I, really sure why he chose to do that, but I, I loved it, man. I was like, yeah. It's like he bothers him so much that this dude is like opposing him. Like he's been such king shit of this area for so long. It's just like, how dare you, motherfucker? You know who I am? I'm the Duke of New York. Hey, number one. The crazy thing is, is that like Kurt Russell and Isaac Hayes, they had their duel, but it's actually Donald Pleasance. Who gets this gigantic machine gun out and mows mows him down at the end of the movie? Yeah, and even that's an interesting like kind of dichotomy. Is like he saves Kurt Russell's life by doing it, but is he doing it to save Kurt Russell's life, or is he doing it because he wants payback on Isaac Hayes? Like while I was watching it, because he thought, baits him. I thought like, oh well, the president's like doing a solid, but then a few minutes later, you realize, no, this president's just a dick. Well, yeah, I mean, if you watch it, he kind of uses like Snake Plissken as bait, right? Because he's going, he's like Snake Plissken's going up this the the wall uh, to get out of the prison, and the, the ropes like hoisting him up, and the president actually stops the winch, so Isaac Hayes will come up so he can gun him down. So, yeah, no, I think it was total revenge motivation here. Him and the president end up making out. Everybody else dies on the bridge, either through gunfire or or the mines. Mines, yeah. Yeah. That is pretty cool. I always liked it when the uh, the taxi cab blows up. It blows up cleanly in half. Yeah. Like the front half goes off this way and the back end stays out. I always thought that was kind of comical. Everybody gets out fine except for poor Cabby who's destroyed. Cabby didn't make it at all. And then Brain ends up stepping on the mind. And then Maggie's like so distraught. I guess, you know, when, you, when you're watching the movie, you don't realize, like, I, you know, I guess how much she really loves this dude or how much this guy, this guy like, has come to mean to her. She's, so she asks for the gun from Snake and starts shooting it as a case, driving right at her. Well, she's, she's also sacrificing herself so that Snake can get the head and have a chance to get away from him because Hayes is going to catch him in the car. Yeah, I mean, I think she's half doing that, but she's she's very emotionally distraught. Oh she's, yeah, she's brain. she's obviously not gonna, without him, life's not worth living. That's I mean, that's an obvious statement that's happening. Adrian Barbeau, this is one of my favorite moments of hers. Like, I mean, outside of like a scene in the fog, I think this may be my favorite acting moment from her. She really brought. Oh, really? She, yeah, it's just it's 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 so subtle. Like, I think a lot of people would have, I think a lot of other people would have chose to go way over the top. Or, you know, I think she plays it just, just right in this scene. You, you, you feel sorry for it. But then, of course, you know, they get out. The president, Snake, they're out. They're safely. He gets the charges defused. And he gives the tape to Lee Van Cleef's character. And he gives him the kill you later line. You gonna kill me now, Snake? 
I'm too tired. Maybe later. I've got another deal for you. Uh, you know, that's when Kurt Russell goes up to the president asking, like, hey, a lot of people died getting you out. And the president's like, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people did die. <laughs> Their sacrifice is highly appreciated. Yeah, it's pretty much. He just tells him like, "Hey, buddy, you want some money or something?" Go. I'm fuck about off. to be on TV. Leave me alone. Yeah, and he's getting his shaved. Well, done. It's, it's sort of that weird moment because the president like starts off with, "Is there any way that I can repay you?" And he's like, "Yeah, answer this question." And then he just gives this political answer that kind of makes him an ass. Yeah, and then Snake just kind of he didn't he didn't do anything. He just walks off. He's just like, "All right." He's asking to find out, like, what kind of person are you? Yeah. And then when he finds out that he did all that for this asshole, then he's like, well, and he just walks off. I totally kind of, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but to me, it was like Snake was giving him the opportunity. You answer this question right, I'll give you the right tape. Yeah. Prove to me that that humans are worth it. (laughs) And of course he doesn't. Right. And he rips the tape up. And the president plays one of Cabby's. No, I yeah, I'm a big Carpenter fan. This movie is great. If you like, if you like the Road Warrior, and you haven't seen this movie, you need to see it. If you've seen this movie, and you haven't seen the Road Warrior. See that. These are two movies that you definitely need to see. Escape from New York, masterpiece. Well, I just I, I like how Carpenter, movie. you know, I mean, even like, even if you watch this movie from a modern day perspective and you're like, oh, it looks cheap or this doesn't seem exciting. You cannot say that Carpenter doesn't shoot with theme in mind and and thought behind his shots. I mean, you can learn a lot from just watching what the man does. Man, if you are bored by this film, I mean, just. I don't know. You gotta you gotta stop watching those YouTube videos and just <laughs> learn some patience, man. You just stop with all this quick gratification. Let it. Let it. Yeah, we definitely live in a, a time where people don't have a lot of patience for uh, setup. Yeah, I think somebody had, had watched uh, Halloween um, a couple years ago, like in the two thousands, and that's the first time they've seen it, and they were just like, "Oh, this is painfully boring." Really? I was just like, well, man, you got to look at when it was made, and but still, it's like that constant build-up to the end of that movie. Like, how how do you not find that exciting? Like, I don't know. Just different different opinions, different tastes. That's all. Right? Totally different. Right, right. If you've only been exposed to modern, very fast-paced movies, and those are the ones you're used to watching... Then yeah, watching something that is as paced like Halloween, then it's gonna feel a little slow. New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control. They think. Two trailers came out this week. Star Wars and Batman versus Superman. No, no, no. Batman v Superman. Get okay. the title right. Dawn of Justice. That is the worst fucking title ever. The movie looks good, but Yeah, the movie looked really good. Um I was a little disappointed with the Star Wars trailer. 
And I know that's not a popular thing to say. And I know. You go online, message boards are full of awesome. But I didn't see the awesome. I thought it, to me, like the message the trailer told me was, you should be excited there's a Star Wars movie. It didn't say that... It did not set that movie apart as saying, this Star Wars story is worth making. Whereas Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, the trailer intrigued me. It introduced a world where people are split on their view of Superman. Some people hate him. Some people apparently are worshipping him. Batman's a badass who says an incredibly cool line of, Do you bleed? You will. You will. Or however he says it in his computer I, I, bat I think, voice. Yeah, I think I heard. Do you bleed? That's, that's fucking uh, Inspector no. Gadget, dude. Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, no, that's like, it. I am Zool. Yeah, I don't have a demon voice. That, I, I liked it. I thought, I, thought the, I thought the Batman v Superman trailer set up enough mystery and enough intrigue but yet gave enough um, information that it set up a pretty epic story where Star Wars... It basically told me, hey, Han Solo's in it. Isn't that cool? Batman v Superman, that, that trailer, like just based off that title, I just thought that movie was going to be stupid. Oh, uh, yeah, I, was, I had no... Uh, and, you know, it's got kind of this Watchmen... Like yeah, vibe it, to it, and it it looks like Watchmen with Justice League. People, I, I'm kind of digging that, and I'm I'm actually interested to see what that. I'm I want to see more of that. I'm the, interested to see how that turns out. Did the Star Wars trailer seem like it looked a little cheap to you? All right, okay. I am a Star Wars fan. I yeah. Let's. I mean, we're, we're, we're fans. Both, like, are pretty fan geeky about this stuff. Like, Star Wars is important to us, like all nerds. And geeks right. that like movies and science fiction films. It, it, these are incredible. The first three are these are these are films I think a lot of people watch every freaking year yeah. or not multiple times in a year. I have been burnt in the past on these on the prequels. That right. when those first came out, I am not gonna lie. I was really excited for those movies, and I would line up and I lied to myself. I feel like for a long time. About those, because I wanted those movies to be good. Well, they all had really good trailers. They did have good trailers. The problem with this one was, it's like, I didn't... I did like the, fir- the first shot with the um, with the Star Destroyer. Yeah. I guess it's supposed to be on Tatooine. We don't know. It's a desert planet. Right. I would assume that's what it is. Uh, I liked that shot. I thought that shot was cool. But I felt like the Stormtroopers, like the armor that they had... Looks a little cheap. It looks out of place, and I don't know and if it's because they have a CGI. If they're trying to do like, they're trying to balance like CGI and practical. Right. I think it's missing that. Who's the villain? What's the threat to Han Solo? What's the threat to Luke Skywalker? And that was another thing that worried me is when they had that. There's a shot with the dude with the red lightsaber, and he's got his hand out. That mask looked. Like something off of Battlestar Galactica. I'm sorry, but it did. It did. It looked like something off the Battlestar Galactica. I mean, it didn't look that. That's not big budget Star Wars to me. It's early. It's a, just a trailer. Yeah. I'm gonna go freaking see this. It says Star Wars in the front of it. Of course, I'm gonna go right. see it. But I just I I was hoping for a little more from the trailer, and yeah, it. I feel like they're marketing the movie. 
on, hey, there's a new Star Wars movie coming, instead of, hey, here's why we're making this new Star Wars movie, because the story is really cool. It just, it didn't make me have the reaction of me crying. Like, apparently... Uh, well, you know, like, you, you watch a trailer that is from one of these franchises that you love, usually you, you get that, that excitement in you, and you jump up, and you're calling your friends. This one just... I just sort of watched it and was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, Dar- Darth Vader's mask makes an appearance. That was kind of cool. I don't understand why Luke would keep it, but... It is a teaser. This is, like, way But too- my problem with it... You you said this is a teaser, but my problem with it is this is the second teaser. Usually this the first teaser is to say, hey, this movie's coming. And the second teaser is the one that says, this is why you want to see this movie. Rather, it's introducing like what the villain is or some emotional tug that says this movie is great. This teaser is less interesting than the first teaser to me. Yeah, and no, I really like that that shot at the end with the Millennium Falcon coming in, and the, it did that crazy flip around camera yeah. move and the Tie Fighter. That was awesome. Now, see, that was like that's what I want. That's what I want this new Star Wars movie. I want I want you to give me familiar things, but now that we have all this awesome technology, JJ, come in and wow me again. And I want a cool story. I want. I mean, if you're going to call this Episode Seven and continue the saga of Star Wars, which I mean, come on. The story's about Darth Vader. It's the rise and fall of Darth Vader. Well, it was. Uh, so anymore. if you're going to continue this, then I want something that feels worth it. I don't want just some space stuff. Well, that's, that's the problem. That's not Star Wars. That's that's. I think that's part of my problem with getting excited about it. It's like, it was over. We had Return of the Jedi. I don't want this to come back just so we kill off the characters I loved. We left them in a good place. I would rather keep them in a good place than Unle- see them. Unless the story is worth it. And they have yet to say the story is worth it. I do appreciate that they're not giving much away about the story, though. I haven't been seeking much out about this film. I have watched these two trailers. Based off this last one, this is... I'm gonna try to make this the last one I watch. I'll probably cave in, though, like... No, you gotta watch after the main 10 trailer. Minutes of it being out i'll probably cave and i mean star wars i mean that's the like fuck you disney you fucking assholes just fucking taking my money like that just you just and they know it too because they're just like hey look it's got star wars on it nerd buy this shit and i'm just like fuck you i'll take two can one of them gonna feel (laughs) really weird to have a star wars movie that doesn't start with the 24 21st century fanfare Oh my, dude! I didn't even think about that. That's true. You're gonna miss the whole bump, 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 and the Luke. They'll have the Lucasfilm. Are they gonna have yeah, that? I mean, they bought Lucasfilm. Oh, wouldn't it be fucked up if JJ does it completely different and like just starts the movie with? Oh, that's unforgivable, sir. <laughs> that's fucking unforgivable. Like if that shit happens, I would be like, be a like voiceover. The entire time I'll be watching the movie, just being like, "You didn't fucking start it right, dude. <laughs> Did you not see the last fucking six movies, asshole." I would not be able to enjoy the movie at that point. That would infuriate me to like no end. I mean, I'm sure that nobody would do it, but I, I could see like you've you've talked to filmmakers. You know how like shit gets like, shit happens. So yeah. you, you start with that conversation of it's going to feel weird without the 21st century fanfare. Well, we should just start it different. 
Well, what we could do? Well, let's do a voiceover. Oh, well, they did that with the Bond series. The Bond series used to always start with the little the the gun the gun barrel logo that would come up. Right. They'd shoot it out, and then the ball would bounce all over the place, and you'd get your first scene of the movie. They don't do that with these Daniel Craig movies. You know, they they showed you where that like where the gun barrel sequence came from, and then they were like, and they never brought it back. It's one percent chance they do something like that, uh, dude. I wonder how many how many people would just like automatically stand up. And just be like, oh, I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong fucking movie. <laughs> oh, could you not see them though? Like seriously, like think about it. Theater's black. The first shot is not the Star Wars. It's like a shot of the burn up Darth Vader uniform. Oh. The movie just starts, and you're going, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, what's going on? It would just have this bad taste in your mouth that right would, off the bat. That would be terrible, dude. But that won't happen. So no, I mean, they'll need the they'll need the crawl to just even set up. What's yeah, that's true. Because it's unless they do it with a voiceover, like you know they do shut that. the fuck up, Nathan. Swear to God, you know, too. like they they go with the Lord of the Rings way. They're like, oh man, that worked so well. We could do like a little montage. I'm gonna go to sleep tonight when I have like bad Star Wars we nightmares. Can have Luke, like, do a little narration. Like, what's her name? The blonde chick and Lord of the Rings. Oh my God, have like a little five minute montage that catches us up. So like the camera starts and Luke is just sitting there. Old Luke's just sitting there drinking some fucking blue milk. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll go see it. I'm sure, we'll do a uh, a review of it. We'll be nerd excited for it when it gets closer to coming out. I'm interested to see already, but like the next one's gonna do with the guy that did Looper. Uh, on. Yeah, I'm I, actually very interested in to see what he'll do with it. Yeah, I think that'll that'll but apparently be they've got they've you know the, I mean the guys at Disney know what they're doing yeah they're so, like apparently they feel very strong about this trilogy story so they're like this guy directed star trek and it was a success he can obviously make star wars and he did super eight it had an alien in it yeah and he looks like a geek jj <laughs> abrams you wear glasses sir you look geeky so he can probably think star warsy he does he does kind of wear hipster glasses he does wear those like those black you know I, honestly like glasses. he was the first person i ever i ever saw in those glasses so i've always in my brain referred to those as jj abrams yeah those have totally maybe he started a hipster trend he's the original hipster yeah but Batman v Superman, I thought that trailer nailed it. I'm actually kind of excited for that film. I really wasn't excited for that at all. And now, yeah, yeah, same way. I was like, kind of on my radar now. I was actually kind of like ticked that they were even making it because I wanted a Man of Steel too. Yeah. And a little backstory for anybody listening: like Man of Steel came out. I'm a big Superman fan, so I defended its flaws with the idea that the bigger story they're telling will make the flaws make sense. And then when they announced that they're not making a Man of Steel 2 until maybe later, and they're going to make Batman v Superman, then it just kind of left me hanging on, well, crap. It's just, they're just flaws. In the trailer, it looks like they got that theme of questioning, like, oh, Superman. Oh, I, I thought that was like, really cool. Is he good? Or... Even has Neil deGrasse Tyson in there. Yeah, can we trust a god? Or, right. You know? I and uh, I dude, his cool. Lex Luthor sounded very convincing. Haven't seen him yet, but he sounds the part. Yeah, and Jeremy Irons. Oh yeah, as yeah. Uh, is Alfred uh, when they cut to uh, Batman's uh, version part of the story. Yeah, 
you see that shot of uh they then they do have a shot of Ben Affleck without the bat suit and then one where he's like coming out of some wreckage and he, he looks pretty tough. <laughs> he looks like a boss in that costume, yeah. man. I just it's like, well, all right, all right, Ben Affleck. He did some pumping. I'm on the Ben Affleck uh, Batman train. Let's let's do this. Let me see what you got. No, he's got the chin. He, yeah. I mean, yeah. Even uh, Josh Whedon said that. I mean, and he's a Marvel guy. What the fuck does he know? So, <laughs> I mean, if he's agreeing, guys, it's got to be right. Ooh, did you hear that uh, Josh Whedon's getting sued? By who? Uh, apparently some uh, self-publishing author who used to sell books like right down the street from his office. Had written a book that was pretty much Cabin in the Woods. He's claiming that in 2006, he probably sold them a copy of his book, and he's asking for some millions of dollars in well, lawsuit. I, I think he better keep waiting. I don't think that film did very well at the box office. Uh, memory serves correct. Only made like thirty million some dollars, and that was not uh, that was not one of those. You know, I don't, cheap I don't, yeah, films. I don't know how the plagiarism lawsuit would play out. Like, if he would get points on the movie, or if they would just have to pay him outright for the rights. I don't know. I know James Cameron got in some trouble with that uh, with uh, um, True Lies. It was True Lies. It was also the Terminator. Was and it? Now, yeah. If you watch the Terminator now, it's got like some acknowledgement credit uh, from some. I forget the author's name, but yeah, I he, thought it was True Lies. It was, uh, it may, it, there may be one in True Lies as well, but, um, well, no, that, cause that was a remake. I think that was actually a, a remake of, I think, of a French film. Oh, okay. True Lies was. But yeah, and then, so the guy actually got his credit added onto all the home video versions of The Terminator, and I, I'm pretty sure he got some money. I can't, I can't right. remember what all he, what happened, but. And I mean, sometimes you have to you wonder know. how much of it is just. You know, you read a story or you hear somebody tell you a story and then a year later you're like, you know, this would be a cool story. And you're not really sure where you got the idea. Yeah, that's kind of the problem with those lawsuits. You don't really, you can't really determine like who's right, who's wrong. There's no real way to, you know, to tell that. I think we're going to wrap it up here, folks. We've been talking for quite a while. I did want to say, give a shout out and, uh, you know, Mother's Day is getting uh, ready to approach here. And uh, I wanted to, you know, say thank you to my mom. She was the one that showed me Escape from New York and, and really got me into these movies. And uh, I just wanted, just wanted to say thanks, Mom. You know, Mother's Day's coming up, guys. You know, make sure you do something nice for your mom. You know, she, she brought you into this world. Don't make her take you out because you didn't remember her on Mother's Day. That's right. Think about it. We are also on um, Facebook. So you can go to Facebook, hit like. And while you're on the internet doing all that awesome stuff of hitting likes and things, uh, if you could please go over to the iTunes store and find us there. Give us a rating. That helps other people find us in the show, comes up in the search results and all that. And you can spend some money while you're there and buy live animals. So yeah, that's going to be it for us tonight. We're going to close with a track from the Escape from New York soundtrack. This is track 12. Chase across the 69th Street Bridge. Enjoy. Thank you.